This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today we're going to talk about one of the most difficult and uh, often controversial issues in our society, but an issue that that has become uh, more prominent in in recent years and months, uh, the issue of segregation, and not just segregation in traditional ways uh, along racial lines, but segregation in terms of class and in terms of our basic uh, societal institutions. Why is it that our society still seems so segregated and what can we do about it? Uh, we have with us to help understand this issue and solve this problem, uh, we have uh, my uh, good colleague and friend, uh, the distinguished uh, professor here at UT, Peniel Joseph, who among other things has a brand new book coming out on Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Uh, Peniel, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And uh, a former student of mine who's now, uh, I think, doing some of the most important work with uh, the Austin Independent School District, uh, Celso Baez. Uh, Celso is the Assistant Director of Community Engagement and External Communications at Austin Independent School District. Uh, Celso, great to have you here. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, before we turn to uh, Celso and Peniel, we have, of course, uh, Zachary's poem. Uh, what is your poem called today? Overdue. Overdue. Let's hear it. I take issue with the old adage that there are kids starving in Africa, a continent supposedly steeped in low money per capita. But I take issue with the old adage because I know that on the other side of the track, there are untitled people starving under roofs filled with cracks. And I know I'm not supposed to say that it's all because they're brown and black, but if oppression is an accident, then the fates must have for racism a real knack. It is a tale that has filled our nation somewhat sub conscious baggage de facto segregation is a fact of our prosperity algebra the victor and the evicted is all decided by your side of the traffic it's the triumphant duplexes against the riot tattered damage and i take issue with the old america I take issue with the old America, the old highways cutting through cities, the red lines beneath the eyes of the American Aquila, and the constant replaying of the stereotypical vernacular, and I am tired of the repeating Selmas and their actionless pities, the bleeding rivers from our own attack, and I am tired of singing the same songs. I am tired of having to write poetry about the bleeding, the luncheous students of America suffering the same old beating. I am tired of hearing of kids who must always be witness to the savage, the bullets, the cycles, the inadequate education, and the constant defeating. I am tired of the old America, and I am awaiting the overdue change. Wow. That's really powerful, Zachary. What is, what is your poem about? My poem is really about just um, feeling anger about all the inequality I see around me and how it all st it, it's very similar to what um, many of us learn in school. is something that has been gone for decades, but it's really still here today, and right. that's really important to recognize. Right, and we often don't talk about it, right? Well, Peniel, why why is it still here? I mean, you, you've just you you've written so much about this. You have a new book coming out on on uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Uh, as Zachary says, this is normally taught as history. Uh, why do we still confront these issues in the same way? Well, yeah, I think it's a very powerful poem, Zachary. And um, you know, the poem speaks of red lines and segregation and oppression, and these are things that we relate and equate with the 1930s and sort of the New Deal and FHA home loans and two-tiered liberalism, one for black, <laughs> one for white. But they were supposed to have been obliterated with the great society. Right. And I think what we see now is that legislation really matters. 
Um, but hearts and minds matter as well. And as soon as you had the Voting Rights Act in 1965 and Civil Rights Act in 64, there was pushback. So there was a revolution, but there was a counter-revolution. And the counter-revolution allowed, for instance, um, suburban uh, whites, whether they were in Orange County, California, where they were in Austin, Texas, um, to create their own school districts. Um, when we think about racial integration and the Brown decision in 1954, the high point of racial integration, according to Gary Orfield and others, is around 1988. Mm. And one of the big high points is the 1970s in places like Charlotte, North Carolina, Atlanta, Georgia, where there were court orders, not so much for busing, but to create unified school districts. And we saw we had racial integration with unified school districts, even though there was a plurality of whites who took their kids out, but you still had racial integration. And starting really in Milliken and other court decisions, the court said, well, you don't need these unified Hmm. uh, districts. So what a unified school district allows is for an entire district to be a feeder school to different parts of the community. So even if you live in Rosedale and I live in East Austin, we may end up at the same school and you have integration, right? Right. Our kids would actually be going to school. Our kids go to school. So even if we don't live around each other, but when you don't have unified school districts, what you do if you're in Rosedale, if you're in Hyde Park, is you basically create your own school district where the kids in East Austin or in another community that might be racially segregated uh, are are never going to be allowed to even go to school with, with Zachary or Natalie or, right. or, or any children. So that's one. The other is things like tax and zoning policies. Mm. What, what cities did once racial integration came was they rigged the game. Mm-hmm. Cities and states, they set up a... And, and some, some places didn't do this. You think about Col- Columbia, uh, Maryland, where they had planned interracial communities, right? So there are, there are little success stories that right. are dotted along the United States. Right. But for the most part, the federal and the state and city governments have really pushed us into segregation but a new kind of segregation because if you're if you're African American or Latinx certainly you can buy into a neighborhood but no one's talking about why a lot of times you don't have the the capital to do so right right Right. So, so Celso, uh, sitting in your position at the Austin Independent School District in a city that considers itself progressive, uh, w- how do you see these issues playing out on a day-to-day basis? That's a great point, uh, Jeremy. Uh, I think it's a very timely conversation to have, as, as you mentioned, Peniel, uh, as it, looking at even this May, the 65th anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education, very timely. And I think I have a Google alert set because, you know, I work at the school district right. and I kind of want to see what's happening around the countries in various other urban uh, school districts um, and how they're dealing with uh, the real opportunity to, to provide social, uh, socioeconomic diversity and, and reintegrate um, in school districts. And I think Austin has a real opportunity, to your point about Austin really touting itself as being progressive. Uh, after I've been here about 10 to 12 years, and in my four years at the school district, I've kind of asked myself in, in reflection, uh, is, is Austin really progressive or is it tolerant? Mm. And I think mm. by way of this process uh, that we're undertaking right now and looking at our school district, given that we have the capacity for 88,000 students, uh, and only 80,000 students uh, are filling those seats. And so we have an opportunity to look at uh, not doing... Uh, AISD business as usual, uh, where folks uh, rightfully uh, that have been historically marginalized have uh, criticisms of the district that we, you know, based on precedent, historical precedent, based on the 1928 plan, based on, you know, the Jim Crow years and, 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 and busing, is the district going to make right by 
by the decisions that we've done in the past. Right. Are we going to close schools uh, just solely based on enrollment um, where there are more black and brown students? Right. And so we have a real opportunity, I think, to look at the district holistically and look at regional planning in a way where we look at it east and west as opposed to traditional thoroughfares and dividing lines between north and south of the river, east and west of 35. Uh, to really look at a school in East Austin that may be under-enrolled um, and look at a school west of, of 35. And if that school's over-enrolled, we could probably reassign some students to east of east of 35. Right. And I think we're going to really come to a reckoning with ourselves. Uh, and I've, I've, I've always said, um, kind of in an off-color kind of way, uh, I think... Austin's white guilt will be tested. Mm, mm. Uh, and 35, of course, for the, for those who are not from Austin, is the highway that divides in some ways the city uh, east and west. W- what kind of resistance do you face? Because most uh, Austinites would say they're, they're, they're for, you know, uh, integration. Uh, so what, where do you see the resistance on a day-to-day basis? You know, what's unfortunate, uh, and I think I told you this in class at some point, you know, uh, about a year ago, uh, a superintendent at a Houston ISD that was hired by Mayor de Blasio in New York um, immediately kind of was trailblazing and within six weeks said, hey, I'm going to do a, a desegregation integration plan and immediately went to the schools in the Upper West Side of Manhattan <laughs> uh, that were majority, you know, Asian American, uh, uh, comprised of Asian American students and with nothing short of coded racism. Uh, you saw those parents at after school meetings say, uh, you know, we, 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 we like our school just the way it is. And what's unfortunate is by way of this process, it will yield results that could mean boundary changes, could mean changes to attendant zones, um, and could mean that your student, based on a house that you bought because of the school that you wanted your kid to go to, now could be different. And right. so change is highly visceral. Um, and it's it manifests in different things. Um, but often, more often than not, it, it's not called out. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and Peniel, we've had, I mean, 60 plus years of, of work on these issues. Why have we failed to make progress on this basic point of getting kids in schools with uh, kids who look different from them? Well, a a couple of things. One is residential segregation and never being able to really, we have housing and urban development in HUD. We have the um, 1968 uh, Fair Housing or Open Housing Act, and that's never really been implemented. Another is how we fund schools. We fund schools through local property taxes. So when we think about school funding through local property taxes, and certainly there's federal money, but federal money is just a carrot versus stick, right? Um, but we fund school through through property taxes. So if you're in an affluent community, you can segregate yourself from the rest of the city and have a very, very affluent elementary school and high school, right? And what, what those parents, and some of these parents are very, very progressive people politically, but they don't want, in terms of actual fact, um, uh, students who are non-white, um, who are from lesser privileged backgrounds attending school with their children for, for a number of reasons. Um, they could say it's cultural. They could say these schools are going to lower the test scores and I want my kids to be competitive enough to go to the Ivy Leagues. They're going to say that 
we don't want to have a tracking system for these other students. Right. So we're going to have a two-tiered school in one school. And when you think about Lhasa and other yep. places here, right. um, we already have that. Right. Sometimes magnet, school in magnet schools become um, two-tiered schools where you have right. sort of the white students are tracked in AP. And one of the things we know data-wise is that African-American and Latinx students are much less likely, irrespective of their scores, to be um, allowed to be in gifted and talented programs, right? right. Uh, because most of the teaching population is white. Most of the administrators right. are white. And they're just not finding that kind of talent in our, our children. And also our children are more likely to be punished, expelled, um, um, you know, be part of a, a punishment system um, in, in the public school system. But, but one thing I could say too, Jeremy, one of the things we've lost, and this is where it, it, this uh, Zachary's poem reminds me of this, is we've lost the the moral clarity mm. about racial integration. Mm. And you know, Celso talked about white guilt, but it's really not white guilt. The really the the phrase we should use is this idea of white privilege mm. and white supremacy. And if we're ever going to get equality, we're going to have less racial privilege. And men, and, and Jeremy knows this too, because I know Jeremy is is a feminist and so is Zachary as well. We're, we're going to lose male privilege because it's not equal. We're going to lose male privilege. Sure. And we have to embrace that. We, so we don't run away from it and say, oh my gosh, why do women want equal pay? We say, we love our daughters, our sisters, our mothers. And we can say we learn from them and are mentored by them, right? right. That's what we say, right? But we're still, we're still men. We're still human beings, but we don't have to dominate anybody mm -hmm. to be who we are. So mm -hmm. part of this is a politics of racial privilege, but part of it is really that morally we've lost sight of why racial integration matters. And this is what you write about so well. I mean, there was this moment in the late 60s when we had prominent leaders, white and black, who were willing to take a strong stand Absolutely. on these issues, right? Yes. Do you see that in the school system, Celso? Is there a willingness to take these the strong moral stand? Is it possible to do that? I think it's possible. I, I have some hope. I, I see it every day among parents. And, I, and you know, it, there, there's been several, you know, publications, and again, in areas where uh, urban school districts are going uh, through these kinds of processes to to, to integrate. Um, you look at Seattle. You know, there's some good publications coming out of some parents that have organized in the PTA that really talk about it. it it's really putting the onus on on white parents. Um, and not only that, but let's say you integrate. Looking at the dynamics of when you're integrated looking at how our black and brown students are learning and how we're teaching our black and brown students. Right. Um, you know, you could very well have uh, affluent parents of privilege that say, you know, there's too much screen time and iPad with iPads and... Uh, Sounds familiar, Zachary, huh? <laughs> if, you, if you loan the entire, you know, student body a, a, a computer, but then you have, you know, parents of, of lesser privilege uh, in a school that's integrated that, that, that say, well, you know, I don't have access to broadband internet. And so I need to learn. Right. And right. so, you know, the dynamics of actually being integrated are also, uh, very interesting too. Cause you, you, you also have, you know, parents that black or brown parents kind of hesitant to send their, their kids to school. Yeah. Um, that, that, that is integrated. Right. Right. And, and, and connecting your point with Peniels, one thing I've certainly noticed is there are definitely, even among those who think they're very progressive or activists, there are categories and stereotypes we, cap, we, we carry with us. And, and they're used and deployed in ways that harm uh, children from disadvantaged backgrounds, even when you have teachers and administrators who come from those backgrounds themselves. I've seen this in high school athletics, for example, a presumption that kids who look a certain way are going to do certain things and not perform in other ways. So it, it's, it's so, so deeply embedded. Right. 
in many ways. Zachary, you had a question, right? Yeah, I was wondering what role you think education and lack thereof on these issues plays. Do do we find that part of the reason that there's not as much action is that the, the white community feels that everything that needs to be done has been done, that, that it's a finished issue and it's not worth discussing? Well, yeah, it's a great question, Zachary. The, the new Pew poll on race suggests that whites who are more educated have a realization that more needs to be done in terms of racism and anti-racism. And whites who are less educated feel that either enough has been done or too much has been done. And it's really, in terms of whites, it's along a partisan divide. Um, About 53% of the whole nation feels that more needs to be done. The country has become more racist since the last election. Uh, For for blacks, it's around 71%. Uh, For whites, it's around 56, 58%. But there's a big partisan skew. Uh, those who identify as Republican or conservative-leaning tend to think that uh, we're fine. Um, and those who identify as Democrats tend to think that we're more liberal or progressive tend to think that a lot more anti-racist work should be done. So I do agree. Part of this is an education process. And our public schools, like AISD, and I'd love to ask Celso this, what are we doing in terms of curriculum reform and making sure you have Black and Latinx um, um, history that's entrenched in the curriculum. Yeah, that, that's very important. Uh, about a year ago, I think uh, one of our trustees uh, brought that to the forefront and made sure that we were uh, making deliberate efforts to make that curriculum available to our students uh, that's reflective of their history and, and so that they can see themselves in that history. Uh, that's something we're doing through SEL, uh, social emotional learning. Um, and that is something we're doing with uh, curriculum in high schools, particularly in social studies, um, to make to really have an emphasis on it. Um, and are, are white students getting access to this? Because I think it's it's as yes. important for the white students. It absolutely, absolutely. is. It as absolutely students is. of color. And I think the 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 politics and the nature of 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 doing all of this from a governance perspective, if you're on the board of of trustees at any school district, uh, is really tough when you look at AISD. Um, because I feel like AISD is one of the last sort of districts located in a city where the liberal elites send their kids to public schools. You think of the folks that are moving here um, from the East Coast or West Coast, and you think of those cities on the East Coast and West Coast, you know, they come from traditionally what, what is known to be bad public schools, right, as they perceive them, you know, schools in Chicago, schools in Boston, schools in L.A., um, and when they move here, they often don't think twice about really not giving us a chance because um, they assume the public schools are bad. And I think the public schools are awesome um, here in Austin ISD, but there's a lot we need to do and mitigate barriers to entry for kids of color to make it into the Lhasas, into the Keelings, and looking at the application process. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's still things that need to be done to really break down those barriers, even when you look at New York and what's in statute uh, in law over there. Uh, with the application process to get into, I think maybe your alma mater, Stuyvesant High School. Stuyvesant High School has, uh, I think, uh, six African Americans in its new class of nine hundred. That's right. Which I is read, about what the number that. was when I was there. In fact, we might have had a few more. But yikes! Was, uh, yeah, but it's so, also largely non-white. I mean, the, the, these issues get very complex because Stuyvesant then, when I went to high school, Stuyvesant and now is majority Asian American children mm-hmm. of immigrants. So they're not privileged. They don't see themselves as being privileged in a traditional sense. Right. But as Peniel would point out, they're privileged in a different sense. Absolutely. Right. And that's why these these issues get very complex because they say well look we're not white don't don't hold us to to the to that baggage but they don't realize they're carrying their own baggage and when we think about testing and how do we get access to elite schools for students of color and families of color i know for african-americans 
their access to elite schools now is around the same percentage as it was in 1980. Right. So it's, it's, it stayed for the last almost 40 years um, stagnant. Right. right. Yeah, so I think actually in New York it's gone down. It's gone down. It's Iverson. Yeah. So um, yeah, so we've we've got major issues, but part part of this when we think about education and curriculum reform and segregation, it's really about uh, blacks, whites, uh, Latinos, and others um, working, um, living, and dying separately. You yeah. know, um, we're we're very very lucky to be at the university and connected to these universities because these universities are engines of not just social transformation, but they're engines of their own kind of racial integration. So it doesn't mean universities are perfect, but universities bring people together. Right. Though of course we could do a lot better. As, yes. As as you've pointed out, uh, working with Leonard Moore and others on yes. campus very very uh, very forcefully. Um, so we have a a couple of student questions, particularly on the positive things we can do. Our first question. Uh, is actually about, about Black Lives Matter. And this is from Misha Afkami, if we can hear Misha's question. How can movements like Black Lives Matter improve racial relations in the United States? Peniel? Oh, that's a great question, Misha. Um, I think uh, movements like Black Lives Matter are very, very important in terms of raising educational consciousness. So I think when you hear Zachary's poem and people talk, having an understanding of not just Martin Luther King Jr. and Selma, but mass incarceration, what's happening with um, uh, immigration, because Black Lives Matter policy platform looks at immigrants, both Spanish-speaking immigrants, but also African immigrants. Um, hugely, hugely important. And it also lets us know that the struggle for racial justice is intrinsically tied to a struggle for American citizenship and democracy. And that we can protest uh, through nonviolent civil disobedience in a way that's very reminiscent of people like Dolores Huerta and Martin Luther King Jr. and Cesar Chavez and, and, and others, right? So I think it's been hugely important. And also just in terms of policy, Black Lives Matter uh, movements changed policy at the local level. They got meetings with President Barack Obama. The D Justice Department changed some policies. So uh, it's hugely, hugely important because we need... Um, our young people and our students to have a understanding of what's going on. Just raising consciousness about these issues. Usually. Right? Absolutely. I think, I think groups uh, like Black Lives Matter uh, have been very important uh, and have been the linchpin for even in our laboratories of democracy, our municipalities. Yes. I think it's no coincidence that in the past year and a half or two, you know, whether it's a name only, if, if those are some of the criticisms, which there are, because I've heard them, uh, it's no coincidence that, you know, the city of Austin hired an equity officer, right. that Austin ISD is in the process of hiring an equity officer. And activist groups, I think, play play a big role in ensuring that those things happen and that, and that these positions in these big bureaucracies have the structural authority to implement the change that we need. Well, and it's been one of our themes on this podcast and in the scholarship and teaching that all of us do, which is that activism matters. Democracy only progresses when people raise their voices. Change comes from below. Absolutely. Not, not above, right? Yeah, and sometimes we, we support the activism of lobbyists, but when people are in the streets lobbying, we say, this is not good, right? Right. But if people are in suits and ties and they go up to the Texas ledge and have these closed door meetings, right. that's fine. Or you right. go to ca Capitol totally. Hill, right? Totally. <laughs> and that's fine. But we, we need activism is just lobbying, right? That's Martin right. Luther King Jr. was a lobbyist, right? right? But he was a lobbyist on behalf of social justice. Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, they are lobbyists and they're lobbying, but they're 
they're they're not in suits and ties, right? And and they don't a lot of times have access to uh, the billionaires, right? right? Very 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 right. rarely. So um, yeah, Black Lives Matter. We can think of it as not just a social justice group, but a lobbying group for racial justice right. and equality. And we have to recognize that there's nothing more historically American than lobbying for the interests of your group. I, I, I tell my students, Thomas Jefferson was a lobbyist. Absolutely. The Declaration of Independence is a lobbying document Absolutely. in this sense. Um, so this brings us to our, our last question. We always like to close uh, on an optimistic note, even though this is a, a difficult subject, and uh, on an activist note. And so our final question is from Matthew Coe, and he asks very specifically about what college students uh, can do. If we can hear Matthew's question. What steps can a college student take to combat modern segregationist zoning laws? Celso, what what do you say to college students who uh, have come out of school districts like the Austin Independent School District, the New York School District, and want to, while they're in college and after they finish college, want to get involved in making a difference? Yeah. How can they do that? That's an excellent question. Uh, I still view myself as a college student. I think I graduate in a few more weeks. (laughs) Yes, yeah, maybe. (laughs) uh, Maybe. Celso's Uh, finishing a master's, though. He's he's (laughs) well beyond college. Um, As a a non-educator in public ed administration, um, you know, I often we partner with the university a lot in the, the School of Ed here. And I think it's important for college students to really, you know, identify the problem, call it what it is, tackle it directly and continue to nurture uh, productive dialogue and conversation. And, 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 and here, especially at the university, I know I have conversations with a lot of colleagues here about what the ed school is doing as they, you know, cultivate a, a new wave of principles for yes. those that are seeking principalships, for those that are looking at the superintendency program and seeking to be a superintendent. How are we really training our future leaders of school districts? Um, and I think it's it's important for college students, you know, at universities, whether or not they're in, uh, you know, the the discipline of of, of ed of, of education to really move the needle that way as well and have a dialogue with, I with love folks that. at the at the college. I love the notion of keeping these different institutions connected. Absolutely That's wonderful, Peniel. Yeah, I think college students can do a, a number of different things, especially when it comes to zoning laws. Um, get together with your neighborhood association, meet up with your local city council person. Uh, whether it's a, a she or, or him. Know who um, that person is. Know who that person <laughs> is. You can write and lobby to the mayor. You can write and lobby to your university. Um, there's so many different things you can do because I think it's an awesome question because of zoning is part of the reason why we have segregation. It's about, um, you know, we need a new city plan for, for housing yep. and we're working on that code next is out and one of the things that we want to do in the city of Austin is have mixed use where yes. um, people can build several kinds of housing and we can have um, um, mixed income neighborhoods right so we don't just have to have neighborhoods like Tarrytown um, versus you know some some other very very poor poor area fantastic I, I, I want to add yeah, you please. know college students we, one thing is is vote right yes that, that, please that demographic uh uh doesn't vote at, at the rate it, it really needs to right um and so i think particularly in austin when we see the demographics changing the way they are um with with uh really the bubble not popping uh at all right um majority renter uh, very economically segregated um if you look at the very core of the city it's like a donut if, if, right. if you if you Listen to Ryan Robinson, the city demographer, he talks about how people really my age are putting off very traditional milestone things like getting married, having a having a kid, 
uh, purchasing, you know, a house, a car. And so when you have uh, college students or very, or after you graduate, young people, uh, it's really it's really important for them to be invested in what's happening at the school district. Yes, I agree. And the city planning. Absolutely. And to be involved, voting, making yep. their voices heard, going back to your schools. Uh, great points. Zachary, does this resonate with you? Do you think this? Do you think your generation is going to make a difference on these issues? I, I do think there's a lot of awareness, but I also think there's a lot of ignorance, especially among the people who I interact with. I think a lot of them, I think there's too much um, looking at... Uh, certain people or certain neighborhoods or certain schools in in, in ways, in, in very black and white ways, um, in terms of, like, that, that's a bad school or that's a bad area or those are bad people. I think that's it's, it's a problem that really needs to be addressed um, by parents and teachers and other students. I think there needs to be more education around those issues. Well, I think that's a that's a perfect note for us to close on because these are issues that will require decades of work, and uh, that work can only begin with raising awareness. And uh, the solutions are not simple, but if we don't talk about it, we're we're going to continue to backslide. And I think today's uh, program has really given us a chance to think about these issues in a in a sophisticated way, and to begin to talk about ways that, that we can all get involved at the very least. So, uh, thank you, Celso. Thank you, Peniel, and thank you, Zachary, uh, and thank you for listening to uh, this is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.